Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the, advantages, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Very much. Um, I'm just going to, as Andy comes up, I'm just going to quickly pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Um, thank you for Andy and, and challenging him and changing his heart through Ecclesiastes. And we pray that you help us uh, listen this evening, help us to understand your word, and please help uh, your spirit to uh, change our hearts as well. In your name we pray. Amen. If you look again at the chapter we just looked at, and this is not a rhetorical question, what, how would you describe the genre, the style of writing? It's a bit different from what we're looking at this morning. How would you describe this? Proverbs, thank you. So we've got four sessions, and uh, it was natural, obviously, to have an intro, and the final one we're going to do a conclusion. We can't do everything in Ecclesiastes, and I've basically chosen this partly because I want us to have a taste of different types of writing, and I think we're not really used to, some of us, um, drilling deep into Proverbs. They're a different sort of writing. Um, They don't actually lend themselves very well to... Uh, immediate benefit on a first reading. They're the sort of thing it's like crosswords, they're puzzles, they're riddles, they really lend themselves well to hard work and meditation. So I know um, Jack mentioned this is the graveyard slot. I'm very hopeful that you know we're going to push on hard and really deserve our food at the end of it because I want us to get into Proverbs and to think hard about them. Um, just to um, orient ourselves again, do you remember 
Uh, we began in Ecclesiastes thinking about um, having our noses pressed into just what kind of a world it is we live in, a world subjected to futility. And uh, we've thought about what it is to live wisely in that kind of world and to discover that uh, life is about gifts more than gain. Uh, last time we were thinking about what it is to discover that we are creatures uh, with respect to time. We don't control time. There's a Lord who gives the seasons and we do well to lean in and uh, adapt to what he gives us and accept that he is Lord of time. Now we're thinking about a new topic and that is uh, related and it is how uh, we wisely relate to hard times. Um, and that's, you'll see on your sheets, um, living contentedly in trials is what we're thinking about um, first off. Apparently the Aussies, I don't know, I'm seeing, haven't met any Aussies, have I? We're a bit low on Aussies. Apparently the Aussies say that they can tell uh, when a plane load of Brits has touched down at Sydney Airport because after the engines are turned off, the whining still continues. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, sadly, the Brits... Uh, have this reputation, I know, as whinging poms. Um, thing is, I read the Bible and it tells me that we can't be the only ones who are grumblers. The Bible seems to suggest it's, uh, it's not just Brits. Um, I guess for some of us, um, uh, it's just a knee-jerk reaction, maybe the kind of families we grew up in. Uh, whenever things don't go how we planned, we just grumble. Uh, perhaps if we've been around Christian circles long enough, We've learned to bite our tongue, but we just grumble internally uh, in our hearts and just go a bit, we just kind of become not very nice to be around. Um, And in the passage we're looking at today, Solomon is going to warn us, well, he's going to show us that there is a much better way to live. Uh, In particular, he wants us to discover that hard times and situations which are going to expose the brokenness of this world especially actually seeing death close to us, that's one of the themes. These things we're going to discover are God's means of bringing wisdom and blessing into our lives. If, if we are ready to be taught by them. That's the punch. So we're going to get into the verses. And the first thing Solomon wants to teach us is, and it's on your sheets, is that death is a better teacher than birth. So let's... Go for verse 1, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. So the first half of the verse, you can have to uh, get yourself into the mindset of Proverbs. It tells us about two precious things, did you notice? But out of these two things, a wise person has hopefully learned that a good reputation is more precious even than precious ointment. And in the same way, the day of death and the day of birth, presumably both significant, both precious moments, but the wise person will realise that the day of death is even more precious and significant than the day of birth. Now, I take it that verse 1 is a bit of an attention grabber. It's a bit of a teaser. It's to reel us in. It's quite provocative. Um, Because on its own, if this is all that we had, we might think it's saying... It's a death wish. It's better to die than to live. You know, as though Solomon was really having a a bad day. But we're going to read on. And if we read on, we discover that what he's actually saying is, it's better to go to a funeral parlour 
than to a maternity ward. So let's keep going, verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Strange thing to say, why does he say it? Why are funerals better than baby thanksgiving services? Well, for this, that is death, for this is the end of all mankind. The, the, the outcome of all mankind, they will die. And the living will lay it to heart. So the reason funerals are so important, Solomon says, is because they provide an opportunity for us to learn wisdom. Um, I've discovered there's quite a few um, births recently at St John's. There's some little ones around. Uh, when a child is born, um, it's, it's a nice time. It's a time for unbridled... Um, I don't know really what to call it. Uh, optimism, daydreaming, unreality perhaps. Have you had these comments? Uh, you know, they look at the little scrawny bundle and they say something like, look at her. Oh, I think she's going to be an astronaut, don't you? And you look back at the kind of dating parent and you say, do you want a statistical probability on that? Or do you just want a nod? You know, it's, it's kind of... Birth is not really the time for stark realism. It's the time for kind of just daydreams. Whereas deaths, on the other hand, are the opposite. Uh, deaths are an opportunity not for unbridled daydreaming. Deaths are all about realism. They're all about inescapable facts. Um, I guess not many of us in this room would define ourselves as goths. I'm guessing that just from a looking around. Uh, not much black eyeliner, not much punk clothing. But there are a lot of people in London, especially uh, three stops down the Northern Line from Hampstead. Southside, Chalk Farm, what's the next one? Uh, a lot of people in Camden who do um, adopt this focus, don't they, on skulls and on death. And I take it, part, it's partly because they're reacting against a mainstream culture in which death has basically been airbrushed out of life. It has, hasn't it? It's been kept away from us. We don't see it. We assume that if it doesn't, if we don't see it, it won't happen. But of course, it's nonsense. It will happen. And Solomon's message from the beginning of this book is that we need to take the brokenness, the fallenness of this world, deadly seriously. Stop living in a delusion that we can build heaven here and we're going to live forever on this earth. Um, our forebears used to keep um, human skulls on their desks as a reminder to them every day of the frailty of life. In fact, as a medical student, I used to do this myself, slightly pretentiously, and then the time came when it was more useful, the skull, to a, a younger student, and I handed the whole skeleton on. And I was a bit sad about it, because I couldn't be this pompous anymore, but um, it, it's a great uh, conversation starter. If you've got a skull, can I you know, get it out of the cupboard, put it on the desk? And it is a great reminder for us of the frailty of life. I think our forebears got this right. And reflecting on verse 2 has made me think back to the funerals which I've been to just over the last few years. And it is true, they have been very helpful, actually much more helpful than the you know, the infant baptisms or thanksgiving services in communicating what is really important about life. So I think uh, of a friend, uh, Josie's of mine from uni, whose mother died a few years ago. 
Um, because her um, father is the chairman of a global bank, he's a very big cheese, people literally flew in from around the world, some were in private jets, some were in helicopters, just to get to this funeral. And I remember, you know, pitching up, uh, I was glad that, you know, I wasn't wearing jeans, because it's quite posh, uh, and I was thinking, in any other context, I would almost certainly be massively intimidated by this crowd. But actually, there was something about being gathered, as we all were, around a coffin that made it very obvious to me that whether we arrived on foot, as I did, or whether we arrived by helicopter, all of that seemed completely irrelevant. Because the reality is we were all one day going to travel, like this woman, one day by hearse. And being ready for that day is obviously what matters. You know, death can bring that kind of clarity. Uh, Or I think of another uh, funeral more recently of um, a friend from Bible College's wife, um, whom Tom and I knew. Uh, She was younger than me, Ali. Uh, Tragically, she's left a young family behind. Um, And after the service, husband, um, Kieran, um, went up to him. It's it's always awkward. You never know what you're going to have a conversation about. It's just just devastating anyway he he kind of took the lead, gave me a big hug and he looked me in the eye and he said Andrew this is why we've got to keep doing what we're doing, preaching the gospel and of course (laughs) just his clarity at that moment in such a horrible situation has stuck with me it's like a you know, sword in the side for about three days I was kind of just mesmerised by what he'd said. And of course it stuck with me because death is a much better teacher than birth. It forces us to face the kind of realities which we too often ignore. That's our first point. Death is a better teacher than birth. And Solomon continues, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? Well, it's important to have the why. It's not that Solomon's encouraging believers to be morbid or obsessed with being sombre. He probably wouldn't actually want us to all become goths. Uh, No, there's a reason why sorrow is better than laughter, and it's because it is a stepping stone to something better, and that is joy. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So it's saying that the road to real joy, there's there's a kind of fake joy and a real joy in these verses. And the road to real joy is not, as many assume it is, through escapism. The road to real joy is not through disappearing into a virtual or fantasy world where I can pretend that things are different from how they are. It's not through turning to the bottle or to a pill or to an illicit sexual experience or through some other way of trying to numb how I feel. It's not through keeping so busy that I never have to think about death. It's not through setting up permanently, verse 4, in the house of mirth. It's, It's not this situation where we and all our friends have this unspoken agreement never to talk about anything real. Perhaps you're in a friendship group like that, the house of mirth. Everyone knows we don't touch on anything serious. Now, the road to real joy, verse 3, starts with facing reality 
squarely in the face. And discovering that, yes, this world is a cursed and a broken world. Yes, one day we are going to be laid in the grave and I will be quickly forgotten. And yet that is not the end of the story because there is a way to have true hope beyond this life. And of course believers of all people are free to be real. We can be real about grief, we can be real about sadness, we can be real about struggles. We don't have to pretend they're not there. And yet neither do we have to be crushed by them because we know that the end of the story is gladness. And the 17th century professor Samuel Rutherford said this, when in the cellar of affliction a man can find God's choicest wines. That this blessing which can come to us not through escapism and distraction but through reflecting on the stark realities of life, this blessing does not come to us automatically. And that sets us up for the next point. Point two on your sheet. So yes, death is a better teacher than birth. And secondly, rebuke is better than praise. Let's keep going. Verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke, the telling off of the wise, than to hear the song of fools. Why? Let's keep going. Verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vapour. So Solomon's saying here that um, thorns do not make good kindling. Pop, pop, pop. Lots of noise. Pop, pop. But not much heat. Basically a waste of time. And he's saying in just the same way, being in an environment or being in a friendship group where everyone's friendly and chatty, pop, 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 but there's never any truth spoken, there's never any challenge given, then likewise, like uh, thorns for kindling, it's basically a waste of time. In fact, it may very well be the way we've designed to never face correction. We've, uh, we've chosen... A, a set of relationships where we can just keep everything light, la la la, and we never have to hear correction. I think this is a, a risk for all of us. It's easy, isn't it? Um, I know this in my own experience, to listen only to news from a certain perspective that we will agree with. Actually, that's one of the obvious problems of social media. It's the echo chamber of people who agree with me. Or perhaps we only see friends whom we know won't challenge us. Uh, perhaps we've, we have our own ways of subtly communicating to our spouse or our close friends that criticism will not be well received. And we've communicated that by snapping back occasionally, or maybe actually by dissolving in a heap to make sure it never happens again. Perhaps we stay away from small groups at church, or we stay away from prayer triplets, because we know they might invite scrutiny. And worst of all, this is the when it gets to a bad stage. We keep moving church, moving church, until we find one where, this is the classic line, we feel comfortable. And actually, if you're in London, there are plenty of churches on offer that will make you feel comfortable, where we can create our own safe space and where we will never have our opinions or our sins challenged. It's a desperate uh, spiritual situation. And these verses are teaching us that yes, hard times, and especially observing 
death can be the route to wisdom and blessing. That was point one, but this is the, the shock of point two. It's only provided that these hard times are then coupled with an openness to receive correction. We need to be ready to learn. And next, the reason why hard times can lead to blessing. We're going to keep the next step in the logic. It's because they are God's means of developing something very, very precious. We're coming now on to point three. Namely, patient hope or steadfastness. And the point there, death is a better teacher than birth, rebuke is better than praise. Why? Because patient hope is better than arrogant whining. So this this thing that's so precious, steadfastness, hope. I said already that hard times don't automatically produce wisdom. And actually in verse 7, Solomon declares this explicitly. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression, that word can refer to any kind of hard time. Surely oppression or adversity drives the wise into madness and a a bribe corrupts the heart. Um, The tagline to the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Conan the Barbarian is that which does not kill us makes us. I won't do that. (laughs) makes us stronger although he said it in a better accent Um, apparently I discovered recently it wasn't Arnie who originally coined the phrase but someone who I assume had a very similar accent to Arnie by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche whatever does not kill us makes us stronger now whoever said it first maybe it was Arnie and I don't know who said it first Um, but whoever said it first Solomon tells us that it isn't necessarily true Verse 7 says hard times can lead, actually, not to strengthening, but to madness and corruption. Do you see the point here? Solomon's saying that wisdom is vulnerable. It's like an athlete's fitness. Either they're working on their fitness or it will be deteriorating. And hard times in particular bring a real challenge to us. I guess we know this. You know, When a hard time comes, we've got the choice. Are we going to get bitter or better? as they say. Either we're going to get more mature, more godly as a result of the hard times, or, and I guess we'll have seen this up close, sometimes just people get more spiteful and angry. Of course, what they don't do, hard times, is leave us the way we were beforehand. They will push us in one direction or the other. There's a verse um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, which says this, "...all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant." but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the the positive effect of of hard times. And then here's the key line, to those who have been trained by it. Very similar to what we're seeing here. The fruit of a changed character is not automatic. It needs to be learned. And what matters, Solomon says, is not how we start the race, Uh, not about the wisdom that I once had when I was younger the the key thing is how I'm going to finish the race look at verse 8 better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit you see God's purpose for us in hard times is for us to develop this very precious thing something called a patient spirit 
Uh, A spirit that understands that this is a cursed world. This is a world marked by death and oppression. And only what lies beyond this world, only what God has promised, is able to make sense of this world. And so we're to wait patiently. The Bible says this again and again, doesn't it? The Bible says we're pilgrims in the wilderness looking to a promised land. Or we're nomads in tents looking forward to the city with foundations. Or we're strangers and exiles on the earth looking for our homeland. So it's the same thing again and again. This is the posture that God wants to develop in us. The patient spirit. um, Perseverance. Steadfastness. Stickability. And Solomon wants us to know that we can help develop either this patient spirit, which he wants to develop in us, or sadly, we can also help develop, verse 8, the proud spirit. And hard times are the gym where we do this training. And we can develop them through, uh, there's a couple of subpoints I didn't put on the sheets, should have done, but they're up on the screens. First, how we approach upsets and irritations, and then after that, how we approach disappointment. So first, uh, we can develop this patient spirit in how we approach upsets. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Wise people still get angry in the Bible. But like God, they are slow to anger. Whereas the Bible tells us that a quick temper um, is like a neon sign uh, which declares to the world, there is a fool, there is a fool. And it's a sign that people can see from 50 paces. And that's because the fool has learnt, as the verse says, to nurse anger in their laps. The anger lodges in their bosom. That's what the image is in verse 9. It's it's of anger like a little baby lodged in their bosom. And that anger is being cuddled and it's being fed and it's getting bigger and it's getting stronger and it's ready to scream at a moment's notice. It's a very powerful image, isn't it? Um, And of course the proud person who has nursed this anger in their breast then does this instinctively. The proud person says, I don't deserve to be treated like this. They're always ready to turn on the anger. And they cling on to an offence when it comes. And once it's come, they nurse it and they build it and they feed it until it's ready to scream. Whereas, of course, the wise person, the person who knows how patient God has been with them, over much worse offences than that and over decades that person of course is able to learn patience with others that person is able to be generous spirited and to offer that person a bit of slack rather than flaring up in anger so we can help develop this patient spirit firstly in the way we respond to upsets and next also in the way we approach disappointment the other area where we can develop either the patient spirit or the proud spirit is this, in this whole area of how we approach disappointment. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Um, I've got a quote now. 
And uh, it's the, the question for you really uh, is, and someone here might know, who first said this quote? It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll give you that. Here's the quote. The children nowadays love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter in place of exercise. I guess somebody might know the person, but at least tell me uh, a century if you, can, if you want to guess. When, when or who might this quote have come from? 1800s, any advance? Or 1900s, sounds Victorian, doesn't it? Yeah, spot on, Jeremy's got it. It's actually Socrates, 5th century BC. And uh, it's a classic, it's wheeled out that quote because it shows that it's nothing new. People have always been saying, wasn't life better in the old days? It's kind of, as soon as you hit a certain age, you become, especially men, grumpy old men, you have to say that. And actually in verse 10, we see that they were saying it long before Socrates, five centuries before Socrates, Solomon was saying it, or saying not to say it as well, because it was a common thing in his day. So why is it not a wise thing to say, according to verse 10, things were better in the old days? Well, because it's another example of the way to develop a proud rather than a patient spirit. You see, the proud person hasn't really taken on board the brokenness of this world. They're still deep down expecting things to have been fixed by now. Why hasn't this been sorted out? Whereas, of course, the patient person realises that God is Lord over time and he's put me in this time and with these particular challenges for a reason. We're learning about this this morning. And then they ask, yes, this situation isn't great. That's pretty obvious. But I wonder what God wants to do in me through this trial. I wonder what attitudes he wants me to develop through this. Or I wonder what God wants to do through me in this trial to help change this situation. How as as one who has been so blessed myself, could I now be a blessing to others in this terrible mess? You see, that's how the wise person processes the same kinds of disappointments. And yet as they do that, their character develops and they develop this patience and steadfastness rather than pride. A few years ago I had the the blessing of meeting up fortnightly um, with an older Christian and uh, one of the things he drilled me in was trying to recognise the Lord's sovereignty in every situation. So he'd say, you know, how's your week? And I would say, busy, which is how people answer. And he'd say, well, I wonder what God wants to work in you through this busyness. Uh, what are you praying that God is going to work in you through this situation? If you know someone like that, it kind of shifts your perspective immediately because you start having to think, oh yeah, I haven't really thought that God is sovereign and in charge of my situation. I wonder what he is doing right now. I don't know if this older Christian had been studying Ecclesiastes or not, but he could see at least that the proud person always assumes in any situation that what needs changing is my circumstances. I'm too busy. Someone needs to, you know, cut me some slack. And they grumble, what is God doing? Maybe not audibly, but that's the attitude. Whereas, of course, the humble person assumes that what needs changing in this situation, first and foremost... It's me. 
And they actually ask the same question, what is God doing? But this time they're asking it with a different tone to it. What is God doing? What's he doing in me in this situation? What's he doing that I might be able to cooperate with and pray in? So we've seen uh, various ways we can develop this characteristic which is so, so important, so precious to God, of patient hope. We haven't really answered the question why it's so valuable. What's so great about this patient hope? Uh, We've had a couple of clues, one or two clues as we've gone along. For example, verse 3, this is actually the route to joy. But here in verse 11 to 12, we're given more reasons why this is so significant and critical for us. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun for the protection of wisdom. It's like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So the advantage of learning this kind of patient wisdom is that a bit like money does, Patient wisdom provides some protection for us through life, verse 12. And it's worth saying that even within Ecclesiastes, which has its stress on the benefits of wisdom in this life, even within Ecclesiastes, there are hints that the ultimate benefits of true wisdom come beyond the judgment in the life to come. And the last two verses of this book uh, say very clearly, uh, amongst lots of other verses actually, um, to look to the final judgment. Fear God, the book ends, and keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So even within this book, uh, our horizon is lifted, and we see that there is a real benefit to patient hope eventually. But we also want to be asking how this teaching in Ecclesiastes develops as it's passed through the prism of Jesus and into the New Testament. I guess we always need to be asking that question when we're reading the Old. Um, Has anything about the coming of Christ changed how I read this text? And the answer is that, as is often the case, I think, with warnings and is often the case with promises, when we pass through the prism of Jesus and out into the New Testament, everything seems to get ratcheted up a notch as it passes into the new. And that is certainly the case here, that the blessings of patient hope, the blessings of steadfastness, are really ratcheted up several notches when we get to the New Testament. And I've actually put a couple of um, New Testament verses here. They're from James. I think James is a brilliant book to read alongside Ecclesiastes because it picks up lots of the themes and shows that they are still evident for us as New Testament believers. Um, So James, in his letter, he agrees that steadfastness is very, very precious. Let me read verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. A bit like the trials of Ecclesiastes 7. Why, we ask, why is this a joyful thing in our lives? Well, for you know that the testing of your faith produces something very, very precious. Steadfastness, very similar to what we've been reading about, patient hope. Why is that so precious? 
I'm going to skip a few verses. Verse 12 answers it the most fully. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive not just a protected life now, which is what we're promised in Ecclesiastes 7, but here we discover also he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So, of course, patient hope is very, very precious. And the ultimate reason why it's so precious, James tells us, is that this is the route to eternal life. It's those who keep going through trials. It's those who keep trusting. It's those who keep patiently hoping in God who will ultimately get across the desert and into the promised land, who will ultimately get right through to the city with foundations. He will finally receive God's well done. Um, if you travel around London uh, later on in the afternoon on Marathon Day, uh, you will see lots of people wearing these kind of medals. In fact, who here apart from John? John did one this year, didn't he? But has anyone else worn one of these medals or got? Good work. Any other non London medals? No. Well, very well done to you. This is our mayor a few years ago getting his medal after the marathon. Um, and it's a medal given to everyone who's, who shows steadfastness. It's given to everyone who shows stickability and patient hope right to the end of the race. And this quality, and we'll have to ask the marathon runners more about this, but I, I'm told that this kind of steadfastness is not something that they just wake up with one day. Um, we'll have to ask them, but I think they will tell you that it came slowly through a lot of hard adversity. It came through a lot of cold winter mornings and early runs. And it comes through keeping going, even when it's hard. But ultimately, and again we'll have to ask the runners about this, ultimately I'm told, despite all the pain on Sadiq's face, they all seem to say it is worth it in the end. And it's the same James says for us in the life of faith. James says we can even count the hard times, the training, as a joy, even when we're in the midst of it. James is saying, you know, you can even feel this joy projected back on the early morning run, even as you're going through the adversity, even as you're going through the trial, there's a little experience of the joy. I wonder if you've um, ever had that experience on, on a spiritual level. Thank you, Lord, even though things are terrible right now, thank you that even in this, I know that you're using this somehow for good. Can you say, have you ever said that? And if we're believers, we can say that because we know it's that training which is going to produce something so precious in us, that steadfastness, that patient hope. And it's that steadfastness which means we will ultimately receive, not just um, a little medal to go, where's yours, is it on the mantelpiece? Where's the medal? On the filing on the cabinet. If I had one, I would probably wear it around the house a lot. But, you know, it's not just for this, you know, little medal. For us, when we keep going and 
produce this steadfastness, we are going to ultimately receive the crown of life. We're going to receive that well done from our Heavenly Father as he welcomes us into his unending kingdom. That is going to make any early morning run, that is going to make any perseverance through hard time fully worth it. And knowing just how precious patient hope is, which is what James is clarifying for us even more actually than Solomon does, Solomon's advice to us on how to grow in this patient hope, and this is how we're going to close, is to trust the Lord of time. Trust him. Let's go to verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. It's not an accident. It's a gift from God. We can be joyful even, we can be joyful in the prosperity. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is another reminder, like in chapter 3, that you and I do not have access to God's detailed plans concerning history. And usually we won't know why God has allowed a particular sadness in our lives. But whatever it is, we know that he's good. We know he's wise. And actually for those of us this side of the cross, we can see even more clearly than Solomon could that God can use even the most terrible events for the most wonderful ends. And we know that the story will end very, very well. God is the Lord of time. He can be trusted. And so the big message for all of us as we close, and um, we've done some chewing. I know uh, Proverbs don't yield very quickly, so do go back over these Proverbs and chew them through yourself. But the big message that Solomon wants to leave us with is to, to evaluate our circumstances properly. He doesn't want us, uh, whether we're British or not, to be whinging ponds. He doesn't want us to be like those Israelites in the desert, always proudly grumbling, saying they deserve better. But Solomon says there is a much better way, and that is to trust. Trust that there is a God who is Lord over our circumstances, even, especially, those circumstances we would never have chosen. And as we do that, we know we will be developing our steadfastness muscles. And therefore we can look forward confidently to that day when God promises a crown of life.